Welcome to Research Realized, the podcast on advancing university innovation. On Research Realized, we interview thought leaders who are shepherding cutting-edge research from the academic lab through the valley of death. Welcome to Research Realized. I'm Kirsten Loita of Osage University Partners. Today I'm speaking with Namratha Vadire, Associate Director for the Center for Deliberate Innovation at Georgia Tech. The center's main focus is to make reliable innovation practices based on the principles of a behavioral economics, social psychology, and business frameworks accessible to faculty and students at Georgia Tech. One of the programs at the Center for Deliberate Innovation is Flashpoint AGT, an innovation accelerator through which the center works with entrepreneurs and innovation teams. NAMI will describe Flashpoint at GT more during our program. Previously, Namratha worked at the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute as a venture creation consultant, where part of her job included pitch advisory sessions with startup founders at Yale. NAMI, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kirsten. It's really good to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we jump into your work at the different um, places that you've worked at, maybe you can talk about your entry into the career of working with innovations uh, and with startup companies. Sure. Um, it's, it's actually a very funny story of how serendipity sometimes has such a big role in your life. Um, I was at, at Yale. I was doing my PhD in electrical engineering, and I was in my second year and um, I wanted to get some experience in just business and non-academic uh, career roles. And one of the jobs I found on the student board uh, was, an on, uh, was an internship at the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. And they were looking at the time for a marketing intern. And so I said, hey, what do I have to lose? And I put my, I tossed my head in the ring uh, and I got called in for an interview. And they found it very curious that a, you know, the second year PhD student in electrical engineering would want to work in that capacity with them. Um, but I really, really had a, a big interest in graphic design. I was taking courses at the School of Art. I was taking some courses at the School of Management. So it seemed like a right fit for them. It, it was a great experiment for me. And um, that's how I started at the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. And it was like a duck to water. I, I didn't know I was missing it all my life till I started there. Um, and I was fortunate to have found uh, Jim Boyle and his team. Jim is the managing director at the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. And his team were very welcoming of me and some of the crazy ideas I had, which is how I ended up staying there for so long and then uh, doing the role that I do here at Georgia Tech. So how long did you stay there and, and what were your what were your responsibilities? What, what is it that you actually did at uh, YEI? So when I first started at the YEI, they've launched programs like uh, the Venture Creation Program, which is a program that runs year round to support um, student teams. They've, uh, they run their flagship accelerator program during the summer, which is a 10 week program for teams that is more intense. Um, and that was the uh, that was the program for which I was I I became an intern for, and that's how I started with them. And uh, what I what I loved about the program was that it, it brought together people I would never have met on campus otherwise. There were 
students from the School of uh, Environmental and uh, Environmental Design. There were people from the School of Management. There were folks from the law school. There were undergrads from all across campus who were all working on products and businesses ranging from um, environmental protection to something about food and beverages and um, and also they had such varied experiences in terms of some of them were, were undergrads, some of them were graduate students. It was just a great melting pot for all of us to be around each other. We were all like-minded people. Um, and when I started off, I was in charge of sort of the, the visual elements of the program. So designing some of the, uh, the brochures, some of the social media campaigns and taking photographs. And that was more my job. But as the, as the program went on, what I realized was that the founders had a big job of presenting their work, the startup and their ideas to the people that they met, whether they were investors or other founders or uh, mentors that they wanted to onboard and help with their startup. And I realized that that was something that I had a natural draw to, that I was interested in storytelling, especially visual storytelling, because uh, uh, towards the end of the program, they had a demo day event where they would stand on stage and present their work uh, to, a, to a group of investors and community members who were interested in what they were doing. And that was what drew me in. And I, with the blessing of Jim and the team at YEI, they said, okay, if you want to build a program around visual storytelling, given that you have such a good interest in it, um, we will support you. And with that mission, what happened was they gave me about a year. They gave me some support and training, access to training so that I could learn and develop a curriculum so that I can then help these teams the next time around for the next summer uh, to go through it in a much more systematic way as, a, as opposed to an ad hoc manner. And that's how I ended up like building a design curriculum to help them with their pitch work um, the next summer around. And then I did workshops based on that same curriculum throughout the, throughout the year as well. Oh, fantastic. Could you describe for our audience uh, the curriculum that you developed and that you ran through with these startup companies? Sure. Uh, like I said, the founders have different venues in which they present their ideas. There's the elevator pitch version of their idea that they bring up when they're talking to somebody who asks them, so what do you do for a living? Or it's in a much more relaxed setting when they're, when they're just networking with investors or mentors or community members. And then there's the more formal uh, places where they have to stand up on a stage or present to a group, of, a room, what their idea is and how they're thinking about it. And my, my whole focus was, well, if you are going to articulate your story to these different groups of people, you have to be able to also pay attention to the amount of time you're given so that you're articulating your story well enough. And um, often, not just entrepreneurs, but presenters in general, no matter what it is, the content that you're presenting, forget that they're not the hero of the story. They're not the people that need to be championed, but instead they need to make the audience the hero of the story. Uh, they are the people who will then champion your idea should they be moved by your message. And that's how an idea grows into a movement and a, a, large, a larger project. And that was the hardest part to convince entrepreneurs who have so much confidence that 
it's really not about you. It's about the audience. How do you move the focus to the audience? Um, and that was the biggest challenge with all the teams that I work with, and that was the focus of most of the workshops. And once you're able to convince them that it is the audience that you want to focus on and they are the hero, it then becomes what is the journey you want your hero to go on so that they then come out of the journey and the, the story feeling like they are empowered to then uh, share your message and champion you uh, because of the journey you took them through. So uh, with the elevator pitch, you know, orienting towards outcomes is again important because if it's such a short period of time, it's like about a minute to a minute and a half that you have with whoever it is you're talking to, there the emphasis becomes, this is not to tell you everything that I'm doing right now, but just to give you enough of a flavor of what I'm doing so that should you be interested, we can then have a follow-up meeting. So the goal there becomes, can we have a follow-up meeting? Whereas with the more formal pitch, there you're trying to pique their curiosity and maybe even answer some questions that they have in their mind before they can even articulate it. And then you go into, um, then have those longer meetings with them should they want to. So the outcomes are a little bit different. And so the, the story and therefore the articulation of that story also has to be uh, subsequently different for those. And um, so the curriculum was constructed around these these broad ideas, and it was a five-part workshop series. The first one dealt with uh, the elevator pitch element of it, where we would walk through a whole elevator pitch. It was a workshop, so they would kind of workshop their story and try a bunch of different versions of it with us. And then uh, there, towards the end, there was also um, a uh, delivery mechanics element of it where I'd give them a primer of well how do you stand how do you present yourself how wh what are you doing with your body language when you are talking to other people uh, what are your nervous tics and how do you recognize them so that there was a little bit of that that we did in the first workshop and then the subsequent workshops were for the for the longer pitch um, which varied between three to five minutes and uh, we went through first uh, understanding the audience how can you create like an audience map so you have a really good understanding of what it is that they care about and how can you relate to them and what the story should be around for them so then uh, once with that base understanding the second workshop was about um, sorry this would be the third workshop the third workshop would was about um, was uh, how would you construct the story arc for your hero to now move through? What is the beginning? What is the middle? What is the end? Um, how do you build tension and interest so that it's not completely flat uh, the way you're delivering it and the way you're communicating your message? Uh, the fourth workshop was the visual element of it, especially because some of these pitches, the formal ones, had a pitch deck associated with them. So uh, how do you incorporate graphic design and how do you use PowerPoint or Keynote so it's aiding your message, not clashing with your story and the way you're delivering it. Uh, and the last workshop was a much more in-depth um, dive into how do you deliver and how are you presenting yourself the same thing about what's your body language saying, how is your tone, what are you intonating, uh, what are your tics, whether it's verbal or physical, and how do you understand them. So that was the scope of the curriculum. Are there any examples of startup companies that you work through this that you'd like to share with the audience just to give them a flavor of, of you know, perhaps the changes they made and how that were, those were successful? Sure. Um, so one of the teams that 
that was the, one of the earlier teams that I worked with uh, was this group of four uh, Yale undergrads uh, and their startup was called Trinity Mobile Networks. And they're all brilliant, smart, you know, computer science uh, majors. And they want, and their problem was that they, I, they wanted to come up, they had a solution for a very technical problem. And the problem was, how do you fix cellular congestion in crowded areas like stadiums or concerts where everybody's trying to access the same cell towers, set of cell towers, but, and therefore everybody's usage is slowed down significantly because of that. Um, and with them, the challenge was, how do you articulate this very technical problem, which has a very technical solution, to an audience that has not lived, breathed, and you know, slept with this problem and therefore understands the intricacies and the subtleties of what is going on. Um, and what's compounded, what compounded this particular issue was, you know, when you have very smart technical people, they think that one way to show how smart you are is to impress people with the technical aspects of the solution that you're trying to uh, build or share. And very often, that's the exact opposite of approach for what you should be doing, because bombarding somebody with a lot of technicalities and jargon just distracts from the larger story that you want to paint and then draw them in as opposed to you know, uh, as opposed to sharing them, just showing them everything under the cover, you you want to hash, get, draw them and draw them into the story, draw them into the process and into the problem. And um, with Tyler and his team, that was what what I felt drawn to. I had a background in electrical engineering. My research had a small bit of overlap with the solution that they were trying to do, so I could sort of engage them on a, on a level where I could walk them through, okay, this is what you're trying to say. Could you say it in a way that a novice, a lay person who does not understand mesh networks, who does not understand, uh, you know, how cellular towers necessarily work and handle load uh, can still come away with understanding and therefore appreciating the solution that you built. Um, and 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 for them, they had a great starting point. Um, you know, most of the audience, no matter who they are in a room, has some appreciation, if not a firsthand experience, of being in a situation where you know they have faced that cellular congestion. Whether it's New Year's Eve or whether it's a stadium or whether it's a concert, uh, they have that kind of bond on based on which they can then craft their story so that became the starting point imagine yourself in a place in a stadium or a concert where you did not have cell service um, and then the the journey was to move the audience through to the next piece of how do you how do we come up with a solution for this so that it, your data is still secure you don't have to worry about what is going on in terms of battery drain and whether it's over the cloud or whether it's peer-to-peer. -peer. So how do you walk them through all of these steps so that they still feel like they have control over um, their data? Because that's that became a large question that audiences always had. 
um, people would say, well, I'm worried that it's not secure the minute you say it's going to go from my cell phone to another cell phone uh, or from my cell phone to the cloud. So they had to come in and show who the team was and how they built the solution so that they could uh, so they could at least allay those fears um, and then show them that the, the solution had promise. And then of course, you move them then to the end where uh, you paint the picture of a world where you never ever have to worry about will you be able to send that email or send that picture or share the moment that you're in with the people that you want to share it with just because uh, you're in a crowded place and your cell towers cannot handle that. Um, and and that's that sort of one example of how um, you can help them move through the, the three arcs, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. And of course, the visual elements that would go through it to make the story seem like a story. It's really helpful to hear actually, actually someone go through the different steps and how, and how they applied that to their own story and that, how, how that really, then the audience fell apart, felt a part of the problem and the solution. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You now work at the Center for Deliberate Innovation at Georgia Tech. I understand the center has taken a different approach with startups than more traditional startup centers and accelerators. Can you describe what those differences are and why the center is using this approach and therefore why they brought you in to, to work with them? Um, I'll answer the last piece of that question first. Uh, when I finished at Yale, um, I had a PhD in electrical engineering. I had three years of experience working at the YEI supporting startups and innovation um, endeavors. And I felt like I had more to add to that piece. And I wanted to explore that piece of my, uh, of my interest and career. And um, when I was looking for opportunities, I sent cold emails to people and uh, organizations that I thought were doing work that would help me learn the next step. I learned a, a set of skills at the YEI and I wanted to learn what was next in terms of innovation, in terms of the whole landscape. Um, one of the people I sent a cold email to was Dr. Merrick First, who's the director of the Center for Deliberate Innovation at Georgia Tech. Uh, he was the only person who said, let's see if there's even something to work on before we promise anything. And uh, that cold email a year later is now the role that I play here at the center. Um, so just a shout out to anybody who's listening out there, cold emails do work, so keep at it. <laughs> um, and at the center, this, this sort of forms the nexus of the problem um, where we see that, you know, of all the startup or innovation endeavors that happen in the world, a very, very small fraction of them actually end up succeeding. And the question that Dr. First asked himself was, well, what, what is it that makes innovation less reliable? What, where is all this risk coming in from? And the question uh, that Dr. First and at the center we ask ourselves is like, why is it that that is happening in the first place? Can we hold ourselves back to focus on understanding who the customer is and how someone can be meaningful to them so that you never have to go on that wasteful loop of trying to guess what the product needs to be? Can you somehow calculate that product in, the, in some way, shape, or form? Um, and that's that's sort of the approach uh, uh, that that the center is 
sort of situated around can we de-risk and make innovation more reliable? Um, and the answer after eight years of experimentation um, is there is an approach that could de-risk innovation, and that's what we're calling deliberate innovation. Um, and the principles of deliberate innovation are, are come from looking at established research in behavioral economics, in, um, in decision theory, in developmental psychology, in social psychology, and pulling them together and reworking them and applying them to the context of innovation. So let me give you an example. Uh, for instance, when, when entrepreneurs go out and do customer discovery, they sit in front of a customer and ask that person, what is your problem or what is your pain point with respect to this particular situation? And it's conducted and crafted in the form of an interview when psychologists have clearly shown us that interviews just don't work, whether it's in a job context or whether it's in a customer discovery context, they just don't work because all the individuals involved are, are there's so much sense making that's going on. I am interpreting your answers in the way and forms that confirm my belief and I ignore everything else that doesn't happen. So that's an example of confirmation bias. Um, you know, and there's so many other such, such phenomena that are happening in that, in just that one interaction. But you, and you can generalize it to the rest of the innovation process. You ignore advice that is counter to what you're doing. You, you, uh, you think back to somebody who said, well, that won't work, or there's a 20% chance of that succeeding. Uh, and then you say, oh, I can special case it by in this particular context, or because my customer said so, this is going to work. So, uh, the, the deliberate innovation approach tries to account or at least expose entrepreneurs and innovators to all of these phenomena that are already well known in other parts of academia, but not necessarily, ha have never necessarily been broached or put into a certain form or shape for innovation. And that's, that's sort of the novelty of the approach. And the whole idea is you know, you just can't tell somebody they're in a blind spot or they're making a particular bias because that's just the way the human brain is wired. Uh, telling somebody that means an hour later they're just going to be back in the blind spot because there's nobody to check them. So then how do you build an approach or a process that can continue to exist without somebody checking you all the time? And the answer becomes, it's a culture. You need a culture where there are artificial instincts that will prompt you to uh, at least pay attention to things that you might not notice. So for example, consider a woodworking shop. Um, you know, we do know for, uh, very well that our, our eyes are not reliable at measuring distances. So what do you do in a woodworking shop? You put up signs everywhere that say, measure twice, cut once. Um, and then you, uh, you make rulers available and you see that if I see, oh, if I see you cutting, cutting a piece of wood, I'll say, Kristen, uh, you know, maybe you want to measure that before you cut it. And so it becomes this culture that helps support uh, these different ob observations and then help people put it into practice. And that's what we call the deliberate innovation approach. 
I'd love to hear more about actually how you teach this. So I understand at the, the Flashpoint at GT Accelerator program, you offer a, you know, basically a, a courses on this and you have a set syllabus. Could you talk, describe mm -hmm. what that syllabus is and what people run through during the program? So, um, you know, one of the programs, like you said, is the Flashpoint at GT Innovation Accelerator program. Uh, but more recently, the center has also offered uh, the same approach and teaching the approach to faculty at Georgia Tech. So a group of eight professors went through this process, um, the, a deliberate innovation, you know, leadership development, development training, and um, are now, they're now fellows at the center. So we've seen that these, these principles and this approach can apply to startups, um, innovators at large enterprise companies and also innovators at ac academic institutions or otherwise who are trying to still do and get better at innovation and research. Um, and what we found is that the, the curriculum or the syllabus focuses on each of these phenomena that I was just talking to you about. So we, we help teach uh, a few different modules and frameworks to um, to the to the innovators um, and they the topics range from things like um, understanding developmental psychology so how do immunities to change come into place how do um, how do cognitive biases and um, blind spots and those sort of mental and cognitive errors play a role uh, then there's of course the the social psychology element of it where you now need to understand um, how you know influencers come into play for example there are well six well-known social influencers you know, scarcity reciprocity um, uh, to name a few where if you if you instill some sort of fear in a person that they're going to miss out on an opportunity, uh, then they feel a sense of urgency to therefore take up, take you up on that opportunity. And you know that the famous label now in our culture is FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, that's the form of scarcity. It's a social influencer, and and marketers have been making use of this for eons now. And how can entrepreneurs be aware of ways in which they're even presenting those sort of influencers to bias who they're talking to, be it customers or uh, or mentors or their audiences. How are they maybe on purpose or by accident using these influencers to bias them one way or another? Um, that That's another example of like a piece of the curriculum that we teach. Uh, there's of course the, the behavioral economics piece where we talk about um, how things like loss aversion and um, overconfidence bias plays such a huge role in how people behave. Uh, the fact that human beings perceive loss two and a half times more acutely than they do a same amount of gain. Now, knowing that piece of literature and academic research, you now understand that when you frame a question in a customer discovery manner, um, in a customer interview, in a way that is perceived as a loss to your customer, they will respond differently than when it is perceived as gain. So how is that affecting the evidence that you're collecting from your customers? So um, that's another piece of the curriculum. Then um, we also teach them um, a process called the documented primary interaction process because we know interviews don't work. So in lieu of an interview, how can you 
conduct a structured process so you can still go out and talk to customers and accumulate valid evidence of whether, of whether or not they're indifferent or non-indifferent to the product that you want to build. So those are some examples of the content that we teach in the, in the programs. So based on both your experience now at Georgia Tech and your previous experience at, at Yale, what advice do you have for academic uh, researchers looking to be a part of a startup company? And it would be, would you offer the same advice to a first time uh, you know, startup person versus a serial entrepreneur? Uh, that's a great question. The way we approach things at the center is when you look at a startup team, especially at the early, early stage, you know, Yale, when I worked at Yale, that was the sort of stage that I was working with the startups there with and over here as well. At that very, very early stage, what seems to matter more than the idea is the domain expertise of the people who are coming together to solve uh, or form a startup. So um, the idea is going to change through the process of going out into the field and talking to customers and talking to experts. But if the, if the team has the domain expertise to execute on whatever the final version of the product becomes, they are much more suitable to be successful than if it's a novice trying to be meaningful to customers in a whole different field that they have no experience in. Um, and so for a first time um, startup experience, that doesn't necessarily, or somebody who is doing a startup for the first time, doesn't necessarily mean that you will not be successful. It's rather what we're trying to say is like, if you are doing this for the first time, do it in an area that you are already have experience in. So if you are in the travel industry, you've worked there for five, six, 10, 20 years of your life, Try to be meaningful to people in that industry instead of now saying, oh, I'm going to be meaningful in AI, in robotics, because I think that that's a cool idea. Um, so domain expertise matters there a lot. Um, that's one thing I've, I've learned. The second thing is in startups, you know, you can't bet on the idea. You bet on the people behind the idea and the leaders who can, therefore, who can execute on the idea, whatever shape or form it takes. Um, and in our experience, um, we, we say we like working with mature entrepreneurs with immature ideas because then you only have to solve one problem. Um, you know, you only have to solve what it is, what is, the, uh, what is the idea and how do you make it into a product or a service as opposed to also teaching them the entrepreneurial piece. Um, I think that those are sort of the two lessons that I learned, like the, the importance of the the leadership team's capabilities and that domain expertise piece um, that people don't seem to pay as much attention to. Um, and, and the fact that we can even delude ourselves into thinking that we can listen to an idea and judge its merit one way or another and its capability in terms of where it will land. This has been really informative, our entire interview. Where can people go to find more information about what it is that your, your program is doing? So uh, the Center for Deliberate Innovation at Georgia Tech, uh, you can find us at cdi.gatech.edu. Merrick is the director for the center. I'm the associate director for the center. Uh, we have seven faculty fellows uh, who are professors and who who are faculty at Georgia Tech from different departments, um, you can reach out to any of us. Uh, 
should you want to learn more about the program or if we could be helpful to you, we'd love to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you, Naomi, so much for taking the time to talk with us today and helping our listeners understand perhaps how to build some better startups. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, questions that may come in from people, so I expect your email box to, to fill up. <laughs> thank you for taking the time. I, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Kristen. I appreciate this a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of Research Realized. Who else would you like to hear from on our program? Please send an email to me at kleute at osagepartners.com. In the meantime, keep your eye on the goal of making an impact with those academic innovations. <laughs>